Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Neighborhood Church. This message was given by Danny Strange. We are in a series called Follow Jesus, examining the times that Jesus calls people to follow him. And one thing I notice as we walk through these texts is that Jesus sometimes is a guy who is hard to figure out. How many of you have Jesus figured out? Got them all figured out. Last week we saw something very clear in the text, which was that Jesus makes it easy for him to follow him. Jesus makes it easy for us to follow him. He doesn't put up a bunch of hoops for us to jump through. He doesn't make us do a bunch of things. He doesn't put up a big force field. He says, come and see, come follow me, come after me. But something's different in Luke chapter 9. It seems like he's changed his tune a little bit. In the last few verses of this text, if you are there, turn to verse 57. And as we read this, ask yourself the question, is this the same guy that we talked about last week? The same guy who made it so easy to follow him? Luke 9, 57 says, As they were walking along the road, A man said to him, he said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't seem too easy to follow this week. These people come to Christ and they have some good things to say. These aren't people who say, Jesus, I'll follow you after I make a bunch of money. Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me live in the world a little bit first. Jesus, I'll follow you, but I'm scared of where you might take me, so let me figure out my life, and then I'll try to add you into the mix. These people don't say that. People say, let me bury my dad. Let me say goodbye to my folks, and then I'll come, and Jesus just shuts the door on it, it seems. If you're standing in your front yard and you were washing your car and Jesus showed up, what would you do? He said, follow me. I feel like if I had an admirable spirit and I was totally surrendered, I would say, I'm, I'm all in, Jesus. Let, let me go and tell my family I'm leaving forever, but, but I'll, I'll come back out. Well, the man says, let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, eh. The guy says, let me bury my dad. And Jesus says, nope, you're not ready. And we could easily look at this text and say, okay, well, maybe what Jesus is saying is that when he comes and he calls, at a moment's notice, you drop everything and you follow him wherever he goes. But that's what the first guy said. He comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, eh. So it's easy to look in this text and think, what's the right answer? 
You know, what's the magic phrase that you have to use to get Jesus to accept you? And we know that there's not one. We know that Jesus looks at our hearts, not our words. And so there's something going on in each one of these three people's hearts that caused Jesus to push back when they approach him to follow. So as we look at this text, let's examine our hearts to see if they're similar. If there's anything that we might have in our lives that might be causing Christ to say, hey, hold on and rethink this thing. I've had a few times in my life where I wrestled with God and finally came to the place that, that first man came. He says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I think of when I was headed down the path towards business school and God called me towards pastoral ministry. And at first I said, no way. I don't know what it means to be a pastor. I don't know anything about ministry. I'm not qualified for that. You've got the wrong guy. You must have called the wrong person, God. Find someone else. And, and yet as God wrestled with me and I wrestled with him on that, eventually I came to the point where I said, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but at the end of the day, whatever you call me to do, I'll do it. I remember starting in pastoral ministry and loving it and working for a few years here as the college pastor and getting this feeling that God was calling me to leave and go finish my Bible degree. I said, God, I, that doesn't make sense to me. I, you called me into ministry, now you're calling me to leave it for a while. And I said, but God, whatever you call me to do, I'll do it. And in, those, no, no, no. and in those moments in my life, in those moments in my life, I didn't feel like Jesus would, would have said, listen, you got it all wrong and pushed back. I feel like that was an admirable place for me to be. I felt like I was at the point that God was saying, that, that's exactly where I want you to be right now. And, and yet this guy comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I will follow you wherever I go. And Jesus pushes back. We see in this passage that sometimes we come to Jesus with excitement and Jesus provides a reality check. I don't think that this man was in the place that I was in those few times in my life. I think this man was at a place that I've been a hundred other times where I've said, Lord, I will follow you no matter what, but I haven't really realized the gravity of what I was saying. Have you ever been there? You find yourself in a bind and you don't know how you're going to get out of it and you say, God, if you just get me out of this bind, I'll do anything for you. Now, you're not really hoping he's going to ask you to do anything big. You really just want out of the bind, right? Think of times that we come to Christ in worship and we say, Lord, I am so caught up in this moment. I just want you to know that I would do anything you ask me to do. We don't expect that he would ever ask us to do anything. We're just saying, you know? And it's almost that that phrase is just a, it's a gesture of our love. It doesn't really mean anything, but it is meaningful, but we're not really saying, God, there's some big thing you want me to do. We're just appreciating that, that we know Jesus. Yet sometimes when we come to Jesus in excitement, he gives us a reality check and he says, do you really know what you're saying right now? I had an experience a few weeks ago where I had the reality check. I, I visited people in the hospital from time to time as a pastor and and the first few times I did it, I was super nervous. I, I didn't know what to say or what to do. And so I just went and I prayed. And, and I just felt like, you know, these people right now are experiencing such a hard time. I, I want to I help them. So I come to them and I say, listen, as I go, if there's anything you need, just let me know. And I'm happy to help. I could bring you a meal. 
I can go and pick up some clothes, a change of clothes, and bring it out to the hospital for you. I can mow your lawn, whatever you need. I'm here for you. And people were always appreciative, and, and no one ever really asked me to do anything with that. Just a gesture. And even though I meant it, it started to lose its impact after meeting with people after people after people and, and having the same thing happen. Everyone would say, oh, that's a nice, a nice thing to say, but we don't need anything. And so it almost started becoming routine to me. It did start becoming routine to me. Where a couple weeks ago, I went to someone and I said, hey, I'm praying for you. Her son was in the hospital and he'd been there a week and he was going to be there another week. And I said, hey, I'll be praying for your son. And, and I was praying for him. And I said, before I went, if there's anything I could do to help, just let me know. She looked at me and she said, what are you going to do? And it totally floored me because I didn't have anything in mind I wanted to do. She said, what, what do you expect to do to help us? And I started racking my brain for all the things I would normally say, but none of them fit in that moment. You can't bring someone meals to the hospital. You know, they're on a hospital diet. We had just talked about how they had so much great family and church support, and they didn't need anything. And now I'm coming and saying, I'm going to do something for you. And she just looked at me and said, hey, what do you have in mind? Because I can't think of anything. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I can't think of anything either. And I kind of backpedaled out of it and got this reality check where I had just become, I just started saying something over and over so much that it lost its meaning. I feel like that's what this man is doing here. As he approaches Jesus with excitement and says, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus says, do you really know what you're saying? Jesus says, where do you think I'm going? You think I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to buy a house there and set up some ministry and you're going to come live among me or something? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. And throughout Jesus' ministry, it's not like he ever set down roots anywhere. He bounced from place to place to place to place to place, doing ministry and serving people and bringing the gospel around. And so Jesus comes back to this guy and says, okay, you'll follow me wherever I go, but you know that I'm not, it's not like I'm going somewhere. If you follow me, Jesus says, you're going to be homeless like me. You're going to bounce around like me. You're going to be like a leaf blown in the wind because the Holy Spirit takes us all over the place. And I just want to let you know, Jesus says, do you know what you're asking? Do you know what you're saying? This man comes to Jesus with excitement and Jesus gives him a reality check and says, I want you to know what you're signing up for. Sometimes I think we need a reality check. I don't know, for me, sometimes I get in this feeling like I'm doing God a favor by following him. Like I should come to Jesus and say, Jesus, just so you know, I want to serve you today. And Jesus is like, oh, great! I was waiting for someone to follow me. I'm so happy. Here's some money, you know. <laughs> and I forget that Jesus is the one who is worthy to be followed. That I should, in humility, come to him and say, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it and mean it. That was such an easier prayer to pray when I was in college. So in college, you switch majors like every other week. It's like fun to say, God, send me across the world. God, change my whole trajectory. Make me whatever you want me to be. That's fun to say in college. Then you have a family. You start having some kids. You settle down. You get a job. And the last thing you want to do is come to Jesus and say, why don't you turn my life upside down? 
And so for me, I know that it's not just that I pray that prayer with less meaning. I just pray that prayer less. Because I'm scared that if I really give my whole life to God, he, he might take me somewhere I, I don't want to go. And I think what that reveals about me and might reveal about us is that we have a, a not-too-good view of God. That we view like him like he's trying to torture us or something. He wants us to take us somewhere just to make us uncomfortable, just to ruin our lives, just to give us a terrible experience that we hate. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, pick up your cross and follow me. But like Paul said earlier, he's also the one that said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That if you cast your worries on me, I will care for you. And then if you do put your whole life in my hands, Jesus says, I will do better with it than you could. So release it to me. Sometimes we get so scared of what it might mean to follow Jesus that we kind of hope he doesn't ask us to do anything for him. Yet that's not the right place to be. This man comes to Jesus with excitement and Jesus gives him a reality check. The next two men in this story, they understand the gravity of following Jesus. They're not like this overzealous college student who says, I'm doing anything for God. They know that if you pray that prayer, God's going to have you doing something a little bit adventurous. And so these people don't come to Jesus with excitement. They come with excuses. And I think we do that too. Sometimes we come to Jesus with excitement. Other times we come with great excuses. And these two men have two different kinds of excuses why they can't follow God right now. And they're good excuses. The first guy, and I call this excuse worldly wisdom, says, Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me bury my father. Now in that culture and in our culture, end-of-life issues are, are a big deal. If you have a relative pass away, it's appropriate to take some time off work, right? If you're going through something big like that with death, it's appropriate to deal with that with all of your life and put everything on hold for a while. And the culture was no different in this day. There are different interpretations of, of what this man could mean. Maybe his dad was like lying there dead. And he says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I got to take care of this first. Maybe. Probably not, but maybe. Some scholars say that this man's father was not dead, but it was just a big smokescreen excuse. Saying, Jesus, okay, my dad's still alive, but once that whole family thing settles down and, and he passes away and I get the inheritance and all that stuff is sorted out, then I'll follow you. Maybe. But, but the, with both of those interpretations, it, it's hard to understand what Jesus means when he says, let the dead bury their own dead. The Greek construction of that phrase assumes that there is a dead person being ministered to by other dead people. And so it almost assumes that this father has already passed away. And I think if we understand a little bit about first century burial customs, it will help us to translate what's going on here. Back in those days when someone passed away, there was a, a funeral, there was a service where they would put them in a casket and seal the casket and pay their last respects. They would put the casket away for a while and and while the family continued to mourn, they were waiting for the person's body to actually literally decay. They would spend a year with this body uh, away somewhere in a casket and until the body kind of decomposed and the bones were left. Then they would go back, they would gather the bones of their loved one, and they would go and give the bones a final burial in its final resting place. And so some scholars say that what had happened was that this man's father had passed away. 
And they had done the funeral, they had done the closure, they had done all of that, and now he was living in this limbo where he was waiting for a year to pass and so he could pay his final, final respects and bury his father for good. And that was an admirable thing to do. That's what a good son would do. The Bible doesn't say anything about a double burial, but in their culture, that's what people did. And so he was a good kid who wanted to pay his father the respect he deserved by waiting a year and then finally bury him. Jesus looks at at this man and and in the kindest way possible maybe says, son, your father has passed away. He's already gone. Let the dead deal with the dead. You go and bring the kingdom of God to the living. And Jesus responds to this this man by redirecting him. Saying, I know what you're trying to do is a wise thing to do. And no matter what interpretation you take of what's happening in this man's life, He's just trying to do the right thing. He's trying to be a good kid. He's trying to give his dad the funeral he deserves. And Jesus says, okay, I know you're trying to be a good person and live like the world tells you to live, but follow me. Follow me. And go and proclaim the kingdom of God. When I first became a Christian, one of the first things I did, I don't even know where this came from, was I started feeling compelled that I should be giving my tithes to the local church. I was 17 years old. I was making $350 a month. And yet I felt like, you know what? I'm a Christian now. The Bible says my first 10% belongs to God. So for the rest of my life, I said, whatever church I'm a part of, I want to give my first fruits of the kingdom. I felt like that's what the Bible would say. And and so I started doing that. And, And as I started explaining what I was doing with my finances to people who cared for me, most of whom weren't Christians, they said, hey, that's That's admirable. It's good that you want to give to the church, but you have plenty of time to be generous with your finances. Right now you're 17 years old. Put that money in a retirement fund and you'll set yourself up for life. You know, $35 a month isn't going to make a huge difference at whatever church you're part of, but $35 in a Roth IRA, making 12% a year for the next... 30 years or 40 years or 50 years or whatever it is till you pull it out, that's a big difference. So give later, save now. Those are wise people. People who wanted me to do what was right with my money and, and yet I had this choice to make because I felt like what the Bible was saying contradicted what was wisdom in the eyes of the people who loved me. And I had to decide, am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to do what seems like the right thing to do? I work with a lot of young couples who are getting married. And I find out sometimes that they're living together. And I say, I don't know if that's a wise thing for you to be doing. I don't say it that way. I say, this is not a wise thing for you to be doing. And they say, well, you know, we talked to some people that we love, and they told us that you can't just go into marriage and expect it's going to work. You've got to try it out first. You've got to move in together. You've got to practice these things. <laughs> And worldly wisdom says, hey, there's so much divorce going on, it's because people aren't practicing for marriage. They just jump into it with their eyes closed, and then they mess it all up. So you need to move in together, you need to practice the finance thing, practice the intimacy, practice all of those things. So by the time you get married, you're pros. The married people are laughing. So I come to those people and say, I know that seems like the wise thing to do, and yet Jesus says something different that seems foolish in a sense. Why would you dive into marriage without knowing what it's like? But that's what the Bible says. 
I talk to people sometimes who are sleeping together, and they say, we love each other, and we can't keep our hands off each other. What do you want us to do? And I say, well, 1 Corinthians 7 says that if anyone's acting inappropriately towards the young lady they're engaged to, they should marry. It's better to marry than burn with passion. And they look at me like I'm crazy. They say, my, my parents said we can't get married yet. We're not ready. And we, need to, we need to exist in a relationship for a while. We need to be engaged for a while. We need to date for a while first. All those different kinds of things. I say, okay, that's smart. It's smart to date, but if you can't keep your hands off each other, you either need to get away from each other or let's make it official. And they say, okay, well, following Jesus seems to contradict what, what seems smart, what seems wise, what seems reasonable. And sometimes it does. And what this young man had done was trying to be a good person. He's trying to take care of his dad, trying to give his dad a proper burial. And Jesus says, okay, that's great and that's good and that's admirable, but the God of the universe is face-to-face with you asking you to do something different. What are you going to choose? Let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, sometimes we get face-to-face with the God of the universe as we read his word, and sometimes it doesn't make logical sense, and so we tweak it a little bit. And we try to say, okay, well, let's find a better interpretation that fits the way that I like better. Jesus responds to this worldly wisdom by providing some redirection. And really, that redirection is ultimately freedom. This man was bound to, to this tradition, this custom with his father in the funeral service. And Jesus is saying, I will ba- break you free from that. Some people in here might have been working for a long time, trying to make money so you can get a better standard of living and buy a bigger house or whatever. And you feel like God is calling you to leave all that and change the way you're living. And you feel like, I don't know. It just seems so foolish to not take this promotion. It seems so foolish to not move up the corporate ladder. It seems so foolish to be content with what I have. But if you actually walk with Jesus into what he's calling you to do, it's freedom. There's freedom in knowing that you don't have to be in the rat race, right? There's freedom in knowing that you don't work for your boss, you work for Christ. There's freedom in knowing that if Jesus tells you to change your trajectory, you can change it, and he'll provide for you. It's not just redirection, it's freedom. When I read this story, I feel like the third man was overhearing the second man. Because he comes to Jesus, and Jesus calls the second man, follow me. This guy just kind of offers, like, hey, here's why I'm not following you. And he gives him a really good excuse. He says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my mom and dad. I just want to go home and say goodbye to my mom and dad. And Jesus brings his harshest words to this guy. It says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Wow, that's kind of overkill, isn't it? This, this third one, the second excuse, I would call spiritual smokescreen. This whole exchange is dripping with symbolism from 1 Kings chapter 19. If you're not familiar with the story of the calling of Elisha, here it is. Elisha was a farmer. He was out in his field one day plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. 
So he had this wooden plow and these oxen, and he's going down through the field, and this prophet named Elijah comes up to him. A very similar name, I know. Elijah comes up to him and says, follow me. And Elisha is so enamored with this thought of following after a prophet that he says, I'm in, but first, let me say goodbye to my mother and my father. And so Elijah says, okay. So Elisha runs back into his house, kisses his mom and dad goodbye. Then he comes back, back out with like an axe or something, like smashes his plow to pieces, lights it on fire, kills his ox, throws it on the fire, cooks it, invites all his friends over, eats his livelihood, and says, I'm out of here. It's the most beautiful picture of following God in the whole Bible. Someone who just literally cut all of his tires with his old life and said, I am all in after you. And this man comes to Jesus and he says, hey, let me tell you why I can't follow you right now. I'm like Elisha. And I had to go say bye to my folks first. And, and when I come back, if you're still here, maybe I'll, you know, that kind of thing. Remember, Jesus doesn't judge the words, he judges the heart. And he know that, knows that this man is not intending to follow him. It's spiritual smokescreen. He's saying something that sounds super godly, super religious, super wonderful, super pious. And hoping that Jesus gives him a round of applause for knowing 1 Kings 19 so well. But instead, Jesus borrows a phrase from 1 Kings 19. He says, anyone who puts his hand on the plow and he turns back, He's not fit for service in the kingdom of God. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus shares his strongest rebukes for the religious leaders who use the Bible to avoid living for Christ. I think he does today. There are a lot of times that God calls us to do something that makes us uncomfortable, and we come back with the Bible and tell God why we can't do it, right? There's somebody needy in our community, and they have financial needs. And we kind of feel like God might want us to help them with their needs, but we don't want to let go of our resources. And so we say, well, the Bible says you don't work, you don't eat, right? You're walking down the street and, and you see someone who's asking for money. And you remember hearing people say, you know, you shouldn't give someone finances because it's just going to feed their addiction, that kind of thing. So you say, well, that, I'm not going to help them. And you walk away, scamper off, right? And, and we use these biblical, these spiritual concepts to avoid helping. Now, I'm not saying we should throw money at people. I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise, but what I am saying is that when God calls you to do something, don't use his word to tell him why you're not going to do it. If you've got a friend who's struggling with someone and you need to confront them on their sin, I've gone to people and said, listen, you need to go and talk to that person because they are sinning right now. And they say, well, the Bible says don't judge. I'm like, no. The Bible says, do not judge those outside the church, judge those inside the church. Like, well, I mean, if I, if I do that, we're going to lose them, and they won't be with Jesus. They're just going to run away. It sounds so spiritual, right? I don't want to do this hard thing because I care more about God. The Pharisees had this custom called Corbin. It was from the Bible. The Bible gave this allowance that if you had resources you want to designate, for God's work, you can set them aside. They were exempt from like the Bible taxes and you can use them in their fullness to go and help people. So the Pharisees created this practice where they would take a big portion of their resources and they would set it aside as Corbin. 
And, and then when their father passed away and they needed to provide for their mother, they'd say, Mom, I'd love to help you financially, but my money is all devoted to God. I can't, I can't help you with it. It's God's money. Starve. And, and Jesus comes after those guys. Listen, you think you're all spiritual. You tithe your income. You tithe your cumin and your dill and all your spices. You tithe everything you get. You give a tenth back to God. But you ignore the weightier matters of Scripture. You think you're so spiritual because you're giving all this stuff to God and you look great and you pray on the street corners and all those things. But when it actually comes to following me, you come and give me a bunch of excuses from the Bible why you can't do it. Sometimes we do that. If you don't believe me, wait until God starts calling you to do something scary and listen to what your head starts telling you. For me, it starts quoting all the scriptures that I can misapply to avoid following God. We see that that whole thing playing out in the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's tempted by the devil. He goes out and and Satan keeps telling him, listen, do this, do that. And Jesus says, no, you're misapplying the scripture. And Satan says, well, doesn't scripture also say? Can't you use this scripture to avoid God's will? That's how Satan works. With all of these things, there's no black and white. These are gray areas. Is it good to bury your father? Yes. Is it good to say goodbye to your folks before you leave them forever? Yes. Is it good to want to follow Jesus with everything? Yes. And yet the scary thing in this passage is it's about our heart, not about the words we use. Sometimes our words are spiritual smokescreen. Jesus provides rebuke. He sees right through all the spiritual talk that we give him, and he cuts right to the heart of the matter. The common thread we see in both of these excuses is they both start with the same phrase. Jesus, let me first. So the bottom line is, reverse that. Let Jesus be first. Anytime God calls you to do something, if your initial response is, okay, God, let me first do this, you're probably in a bad spot. Listen for that as God starts engaging you through his word. And even through your follow Jesus small group as you're talking about these things. Let Jesus be first. This week, maybe take some time and come before God and say, God, when I say I'll follow you anywhere, do I really mean it? When you ask me to do things, do I think of a hundred reasons why I shouldn't? Am I living in the world's wisdom and not in your revealed wisdom? Is my spirituality one that makes me look good? Or is it one that makes you look good? It's the one that honors you. Our fear is that if we give our lives to God, he will ruin them. And yet the ironic truth is when we truly surrender our lives to Christ, he gives us an amazing journey. John 10.10, I come that they might have life and have it to the full. Understand the gravity of what Jesus is calling you to do and then do it. And as a result, you won't be trapped by God's will. But you'll be freed by it. Let's close our time in prayer.
Father, we pray that we would be people who allow you access to our hearts. So often we get so hardened and held back and fearful of what you might call us to do that you don't, we don't allow you entry into our lives. And we pray that you would forgive us for that and open us up to your scrutiny. Help us to release our hold on our lives. And help us to hand control to you. Let us trust you. And let us follow you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear additional messages or you're interested in finding out more about Neighborhood Church, please visit our website at threecrosses.org. That's the number three, crosses.org.